Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 4 of Season 2 of The Narrative. This episode is very different from any I've done to date. We've met and talked to people who are great storytellers and who have remarkable personal backstories that have framed their strengths in storytelling. For this episode, we are meeting someone who has a very powerful and at times very difficult story. Please listen and share this story widely. Paul Bocanegra was condemned to life without parole at the age of 17 years old. Paul then served 25 and a half years, more than 12 of those in solitary confinement, before being paroled under Senate Bill 9, which gave youth with life without parole sentences an opportunity to petition the court for a second sentencing hearing. Paul transitioned back into the community in September of 2017, and he discharged his parole in 2021, obtaining agency in his life for the first time. Today, Paul is living his life to the fullest, advocating for more reforms that would ensure that the criminal justice system never deprives another youth of a fair and meaningful opportunity to work towards restoration. Paul is a certified drug and alcohol counselor, a juvenile justice and delinquency prevention commissioner for San Mateo County in California, a personal mentor for transitioning community mentors, and an expert witness in criminal justice cases involving youths. Paul has testified at the California State Capitol and helped to defeat legislation that threatened current reforms. He has also co-authored legislation in his county and is a member of the Latinx Advisory Committee to Senator Josh Becker. Paul co-founded Re-Evolution to use his lens of lived experience to help Re-Evolution provide meaningful support in prevention efforts with an emphasis on youth and person-centered reentry programs for all the transitioning community. Paul is a motivator and educator, and he seeks to bring out the full potential in each life he touches. He is re-evolutionizing transitional thinking and providing safe spaces for those thoughts to congregate and grow as a community within a community. Hey, Paul, good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning for the Narrative Podcast. I really appreciate you being on with me. I'd like for you to share what you're doing and the amazing work that you're doing in the community. So, uh... Yeah, my name is Paul Bocanegra, and some of the work that I'm doing is uh, geared toward juvenile criminal justice reform, as well as the criminal justice system overall, but primarily here in my direct community, I am trying uh, to create a different perspective of youth and their ability to really mature. I think that a majority of the community has uh, lost contact with the maturation process in youth, as well as the behaviors and thinking uh, that comes with that immaturity. And uh, we've moved to a pretty aggressive uh, punishment model where a youth is no longer allowed to make mistakes regardless of his upbringing, his trauma, his experiences, uh, his mental illness. Uh, the community has moved uh, to be able to really condemn a youth uh, upon making maybe one of the worst decisions that they'll make in their life. Uh, with no redemption from that. So uh, my work in the community is geared toward creating an understanding uh, of what youth, primarily youth of uh, under uh, of underserved communities, what they experience, uh, what their life is like under uh, the conditions that they may live in, their environments they may live in, what their education is like, uh, maybe 
what their biological makeup is like, meaning mental illness, and take these things into consideration when they finally arrive, um, not finally, unfortunately, but when they do arrive to our juvenile criminal justice system, many of these kids are, are already extremely traumatized, hurt, uh, undiagnosed, and we should not be condemning them uh, for these decisions that they make. And we should be looking to kind of help them uh, remold their thinking and really um, connect them with the services that they'll need to be able to really enter that adulthood with a different uh, form of thinking, as well as the treatment that they'll need, maybe a, a diagnosis, maybe medication, maybe therapy, uh, anything uh, along, anything as an alternative to the, the current situation that they find themselves in, which are adult-like cages that we have invested millions and millions of dollars in, that we hold these kids, regardless of their crime, murder or shoplifting, they all see the same uh, adult-like cage in juvenile halls, and as well as foster kids. Uh, many uh, juvenile foster kids in their teens are extremely hard to adopt, uh, to have adopted in the community because of the um, because of the stigma that comes with the terrible teens. And so foster kids also find themselves trapped in these adult-like cages, uh, either through transition, uh, lack of housing, they call it um, secured detention. And so uh, when we can move to incarcerate a kid for no reason, uh, it just really uh, leaves me in a hopeless feeling that our juvenile criminal justice system has uh, really evolved into um, not believing that youth can mature, grow, and change. And so my work is geared toward humanizing youth, first and foremost, and then trying to get the community to understand what these youth go through, uh, not only in their communities, in their homes, in their schools, in their churches, but what they go through once they uh, fall into our care, uh, what the system is like, uh, what they can expect. And uh, so, yeah, that that is some of the work that, that I am doing, and I am a a, a volunteer for the juvenile criminal justice system here in San Mateo County, uh, where we are the richest county in the state. And if you were to take a look at our adult-like cages, we have brought Pelican Bay shoe sales right here to our juvenile hall. And we are uh, labeling that as treatment. And 100% of our youth currently are suffering mental illness and uh, experience mental lapses. And rather than charging them with extra felonies, uh, I'm trying to help them understand that uh, these are things that we have to expect when you incarcerate a maturing, uh, mentally ill uh, mind. And uh, giving them an extra felony for acting out is not treatment. Putting them in an adult-like cage uh, that we have, that Charles Manson died in, is not treatment. And so that's some of the work that I am I am doing here in the community alongside of uh, a few other things. I have co-founded my reentry program that uh, helps me community build as well as under, uh, help the community understand again that same youth that was condemned, but that has transitioned back into the community under the guise of a second chance and um, also connect people who are obtaining agency adulthood for the first time after being condemned coming into the community, connecting them with the community. So both have an understanding, 
that uh, we're a village, that we are a community, that we're there to help, uh, not there to continue to persecute um, these, these returning youth. Uh, and so the work that I'm doing here with the youth is I'm preparing them for what to expect in the future, as well as preparing the community what to expect in the future once we condemn these youth in their cages and sentence them to 25 to life in these adult prisons uh, as is patterned um, for the last 20, 30 years. So unlike a lot of people, I don't know about it. I shouldn't say unlike a lot of people. Um, I'm assuming unlike a lot of people who've fallen into or, and, or chosen this path as a career path or as a way to help people, this is really personal to you. This is this, this you were one of these views. Can you tell my listeners, give them your background to get a sense sure. of what drives you to be this passionate about this? Sure, absolutely. So uh, like you said, I, I, I still am one of these youth, right? I'm experiencing the simulation and the transition process. I am a, uh, I'm experiencing the barriers, the attitudes, the stigmas that come with uh, transitioning from cage to community. And so it's, uh, it's been very uh, heartbreaking uh, to be so excited that the community has created these reforms that allow kids now to come home after serving 25, 30 years of incarceration. And then when we get home, we're still these 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds in, in our heads. And then we encounter barriers that are just, we are not prepared for. Um, many of us who have been condemned, like myself, and I'll get into that in a minute, uh, have come home and our parents are gone. Like the last time uh, we were here in the community, we had we had parents. Some of my friends didn't have parents. Their parents were older gang members uh, or addicts and uh, ha had their own traumas to deal with. And these youth, many of us come home and the world has changed. It's a digital world today. Uh, it's a very um, personal world where the socialization um, has dramatically decreased uh, as opposed to when I was out in the community in 1992. And uh, But some of the things that haven't changed are how we treat people who have uh, committed crimes, who have made mistakes in the community. And uh, again, you, you mentioned career path. Uh, many of us were coming home. We haven't made a career of crime. We were condemned as kids and, and returning home 25, 30 years later, um, we, we come home believing that our debt has been paid and that we're gonna have a fresh start. To only encounter that, um, that we have no support, uh, that you can't enter into a contract, a lease, uh, that you can't obtain uh, jobs out here in the community, even though you have obtained a degree in prison, you come home and can't obtain the same job. Uh, I came home, I applied for one job on federal grounds. Uh, during my job interview, I was told to leave uh, grounds because it was federal property and I was on parole. Uh, no one prepared me to go uh, to a job interview being happy. Uh, my family, I'm on my way to a job interview here in my community and uh, my experience is to be told that I have to leave grounds um, to uh, go to another job interview and they have, um, police officers in doing the interview uh, with live firearms, the same billy clubs uh, that they used to use on us when we were young, uh, as well as in prison or now in job interviews. I did extremely horrible. Uh, so I 
you know, let me explain a little of uh, why I'm speaking on this is because I was that condemned youth uh, at the age of 17, growing up in a very toxic environment in uh, East San Jose, where gangs were, um, where gangs were the dominant uh, influence there, uh, addiction, prostitution, high rates of crime, and uh, being born uh, into a family that had its own internal struggles. My father immigrated from Mexico. My mother was born on a cotton field in Texas. Uh, I was raised um, in a very toxic environment and experienced lots of trauma. And at the age of, you know, at age of 13, 14, I started to hang around with the neighborhood mentors, which were the gangs. And uh, I was provided drugs, provided weapons at, at a very young age. And this is how I was molded um, in the community uh, after receiving trauma. Like many of the decisions we make as kids are fear-based as any kid uh, does to survive. He will do what, uh, whatever he fears the most uh, to gain acceptance within people, adults that we expect uh, to have our best interests at hand. And so at the age of 17, I was in a car with two other friends of mine that were gang members and an adult um, shot and killed another uh, adult gang member in the community. And I never had a gun. I never discharged a gun. I never directed this uh, older gentleman to, to do this. However, I was condemned at the age of 17 to life without parole plus four years. So I was forcibly emancipated for my parents that lacked an education, uh, that were poor, that did not have the economical means to provide or, or try to protect their son. And I was turned over to the juvenile cr criminal justice system who quickly moved to try me as an adult. And this didn't take an observation. This, I was never assessed. Uh, I was never um, spoken with to find out if I had a mental illness. It was into a juvenile fitness hearing, tried as an adult with no witnesses at my trial, uh, at my fitness hearing, bound over to adult court where I was condemned uh, very quickly to life without parole. And uh, I really uh, felt that my life was truly over. Uh, the things that I was told of who I was, who I knew I wasn't, this evil person, this mastermind, um, just, you know, it's at 17 it's years to, old at 17, yeah, 17 years, years old. old. Yes. At 17 years old. Um, just told that, uh, I would die in a cage, uh, for my role in this crime. I had a fifth grade education level when I was condemned. Uh, I didn't comprehend what life without parole meant. My public defender was in tears, could not explain what had just happened to me. My parents could not understand what had just happened, um, but I was ushered away in chains uh, off to these adult cages that we now have here in Juvenile Hall uh, with the worst of the worst, with the worst of the worst. Um, and I met friends there that were like myself. Uh, some of my friends never made it out. And uh, just arriving there, and stepping into an environment like no other environment you would ever uh, want to step into. Just think about that dark alley 
and you see that shadow in that wall on that wall. So I had a, a I had an experience. Um, it was in my early twenties. I I grew up in the Bay Area, not that far from you, but worlds apart from you. I mean, I think that's one of those things about the Bay Area where there's there's Silicon Valley and there's other parts of the Bay Area and they couldn't be any more different. And we, I grew up in Sunnyvale. We were probably 15 miles apart at, at that time, but I didn't have any of the same pressures. I didn't have the same environment that you did. When I was in my twenties, I played um, on a softball team and we would go in a few times a year and play in prisons. We would go in and, and provide, you know, be, be there to help, in the prison. And, and I went into, um, into Folsom a few times and I hadn't been accused of anything. I didn't have any kind of a criminal record. I knew that at the end of the day I was leaving and it was still the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life to hear the sound of those bars closing behind you when you get entered in and to have the, the briefing from the guard saying, you know, something goes down here. We're not protecting you. You're here on your own and something could go on, but just that, that sound. And it's been 40 years for me from hearing that sound of those doors closing. And I can't imagine it was terrifying. As I said, when I hadn't done anything and I knew I was leaving, I can't imagine that sound closing behind you when you know you're never leaving. And, and that it's just gotta be, and I can't imagine it at 17 years old. Right. Um, so just let me take you back to something that you said, what the guards told you when you were going in, that they're not going to protect you. They're not there to protect you. Yeah. And they're not there to protect us kids when they put us on these maximum security yards with the worst of the worst. Some of these guys have been there 15, 20 years, extremely manipulative, extremely dangerous, uh, extremely aggressive. And um, that is what we do to our youth. These are the things that happen to us. And, and so entering the prison system condemned, it broke me. Uh, and it's kind of hard to explain that because I was already broken uh, when I landed into the juvenile criminal justice system's care. They quickly bound me over to this adult care uh, level. And uh, being broken being sent in here, being condemned, broken again, um, was shattering. It, it, what that does to a, a youthful mind, it basically says everything that you have thought about, that you wanted to be, everything that you have thought, felt is done. And uh, that will never come back for you. And it, it just sent me off feeling dead inside. And I had felt dead for a long time already. So arriving here, uh, encountering this environment as a, as a troubled and traumatized youth, I did exactly what I did to survive in my toxic environment. The same thing, no other model. There was no treatment model there. It was align yourself with the same people that had uh, conditioned you to be in this situation right now. and. Uh, with that alignment came much brutality, um, being stabbed in prison, being beat, not only by staff, by, by other inmates, gladiator fights, um, watching suicide, watching rape, observing murder. Um, this is 
what we do to our youth. And then finally, surviving in prison means you have to be violent. And when I went in there as a dead kid, I told myself that I wasn't gonna be a victim anymore. And I knew what laid ahead for me, um, but I would just tell myself uh, that I would keep fighting. And that meant everything was on the table. Uh, my intentions were to hopefully die a peaceful life, even though I knew more than likely it wouldn't. That's what kids have to tell themselves in there. And so going in there, doing the things that I had to do, they labeled me violent. They labeled me a gang member according to my case, as well as my behaviors in there. And then I was condemned again to an indeterminate shoe for being involved in gangs in prison, um, being violent, being everything that it takes to survive in these toxic environments as a kid. They then condemned me for life to solitary confinement at Pelican Bay Shoe. And that is the worst of the worst. That's the end of the road. If you've ever been in there, if you've ever read an article on that, if you've ever seen videos on there, you know what goes on there. And I, I would remain there for over a decade of my life, still as a youth maturing uh, mentally, being sensory deprived, um, again, feeling hopeless, feeling broken, uh, but still, uh, still fighting. You just don't give up. And uh, yeah, over a decade of sensory deprivation. And finally, uh, I, I decided to leave the gang um, too much turmoil. My mother had just died while I was in solitary confinement and I had, I had to make a decision. And so I left the gang and began a different assimilation and transition in prison with the same attitude that although I was maturing and making decisions that everything was always on the table. It had, it had to be. Um, so as I was leaving the gang, there was talk on, in the community of reforming uh, this child predator law that allowed judges to condemn youth, that allowed district attorneys to try youth as an adult without even any trial uh, because other reforms had come to strengthen and, um, and, and reinforce the, the hardened laws that existed. Uh, they moved further by passing district attorneys uh, the authority to just try a kid as an adult according to his crime which is all the time, which is almost, almost common practice. And um, they reformed the law. They said that youth that had been condemned to life without parole to die in these cages uh, would have a chance after serving 25 years or 20 years of their sentence, they would be able to petition the court. Um, on my 22nd year, I petitioned the court after this law had passed Senate Bill 9. And uh, the judge, saw my change. Uh, she read the transcripts, read that my youthful, uh, my hallmarks of youth were not taken into account when I was condemned. And so she made a decision that I was a, a youth, that I was immature, and that I could change and I had taken steps to change. And she followed the law and she commuted my sentence. Um, and so in 2015, I was resentenced to 29 to life, which allowed me to become uh, uh, able to parole. Uh, however, I was denied parole because they felt that I still had more work to do on myself. And I went to a program, a counseling program back in prison 
and and educated myself, uh, obtained skills and uh, what I and and what I use today to do the work that I do. And then I went to board again and was released uh, September 28, 2017, after 25 and a half years. Uh, I was able to come home six days prior. My father had passed away. So I came home to uh, uh, just my siblings. And uh, and it was it was extremely hard trying to assimilate again, uh, trying to transition again with no help. And so I co-founded my organization, Revolution, to try to be uh, that help. Because when I came here to San Mateo County, uh, the only ones that reached out to me were the police department and detectives and gang task force when they came to my house and searched my home. Uh, that, that was my introduction to San Mateo County, being hauled down to this police station, stripped down again, uh, having pictures taken of me, uh, being threatened about behaviors, past behaviors. Uh, so no change, no belief that, that these kids could change, right? And I'm sitting here in disbelief, uh, thinking, thinking to myself of everything it took to get to wh wh where I'm at, and this is how I'm received. Um, threats of the chains and the cages again. And I'm thinking, this is no transition. This is no, this is no help from the community. And so when I began to volunteer in the community, I understood that the leaders of our community are not a reflection of the actual community. Uh, this community has been wonderful, has been loving, has been compassionate, has been empathetic and has been extremely supportive. And the reason I'm able to do the things that I do is because community, uh, the community believes in me. And with that help, uh, leaders in the community are starting to believe in me as well. And, uh, and, and listen, they understand that uh, I am those kids right now, today, with all the reforms that have taken place, the 17-year-old Paul Bocanegra, the 17-year-old traumatized kid, can be condemned again. There is nothing stopping district attorneys and judges from condemning the 17 year olds that exist in our juvenile hall again. And that's why I do what I do because they have no clue of the path uh, that they're about to embark on and trying to educate them prior to that path or maybe intervening uh, in that path before they start that path. Uh, it's it's important to me. Um, it's important to me for several reasons. It's personal, uh, how and and it's personal because it's inhumane that leaders in our community, legislators, uh, judges, district attorneys, attorneys that they think that it's it's okay. Um, we plea bargain. We have the best district attorneys ever. Highly funded. So well educated. They, plea, they put kids in cages that are mentally ill and then they plea bargain felonies with them that will destroy their careers for the rest of their life. Like this is what's taking place. We're no longer waiting for the career criminal. Uh, the career criminal is now the juvenile who is mentally ill, who is about to sign a deal with the district attorney to, to forfeit his career. He'll never be a fire, fireman. He'll never be a police officer because he'll have a felony. Um, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic 
uh, how far we've come it's in amazing. condemning youth. It's amazing when I when I hear you and I you know as somebody who's not close to it and, and I've heard all the terms you know warehousing people. It's even worse than that from what you're describing. It's not just warehousing them; it's warehousing them and taking away all hope from them. <clears throat> you are a story of rehabilitation. When oftentimes I hear you know the prison system, it's not a rehabilitation. There's no. It's not designed to rehabilitate. It's designed to punish and warehouse. And you mentioned, you know, even leaving, you kind of cavalierly, I think, said, I decided to leave the gang. Even that can't be as easy as you just described it. I would imagine that the you've got, you've got these pressures from both sides. You've got these pressures from society and from the law. And then you've got this pressure on the gang side. And so you come out. And the police immediately come after you to say, you know, just don't forget who we are. I would imagine that whole process has to be not that different with the gang you were in, with those guys as well as coming back and saying, yeah, not so fast. Right. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And so what, what I, what, how I explain this is, think about this. When you enter a gang, you adopt and you absorb all the gang's enemies. These are enemies where I had riots with in Folsom. I was in the maximum security Folsom as a youth. Having thousands of enemies and not even know your enemies, when you decide to leave the gang, it just adds one more layer to the dangerousness that you've been living your entire life. As a youth, being in gangs, I had enemies I didn't even know. And I went to prison and joined a gang and again, I had all these enemies that I didn't know. In fact, some of my friends that were in, in juvenile hall with me became my enemies just because of the race, just because of their uh, factions that they had to join. Uh, and it, it is extremely sad what happens in these toxic environments that you can't embrace culture. You can't embrace social um, socialism in there. And I, when I mean socialism, I'm saying the social aspect that you think about here. Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, yeah. You know, you want to have a cup of coffee today? That doesn't happen in, in their life. Yeah. You have to be segmented, uh, right? The black guys and the, the Hispanic yes, guys and the yes. white, the skinheads or right. white supremacists. And right. It, it is extremely uh, segregated. And the fact that many of us youth being born in these environments, we don't encounter, uh, we don't know what a, a white supremacist is. But when, when you enter this toxic environment, you're given a quick lesson of, of, of who they are. And you think, wow, but I know him. He's, he was raised with Mexicans. He can't be a supremacist. They say, you know, he's a supremacist now. Uh, and it's disbelief. I had friends that were Jewish that were tattooing swastikas on themselves because you can't be who you really are. And there you have to adopt this. They do that for their own protection, right? That's the way they, the only way they're going to survive is to assimilate to that. You have to assimilate into something you know nothing about, but that's going to be toxic in ways that you don't believe. And then when you attempt to assimilate out of that, there's more threats of violence. And another uh, type of philosophy and ideology, you have to embrace that you know nothing of that. And so it's been an assimilation and transition for myself throughout my life. 
And my my uh, my leaving the gang has only uh, enabled me to do the things that I'm doing today. Uh, and I harbor no ill will towards anyone. I speak bad of uh, no one because I'm still alive. Uh, that gang that took me in and intoxified my life as a youth took me in in this environment that we just described and taught me how to survive there. And uh, it was difficult. The Stockholm syndrome, like we don't utilize the Stockholm syndrome in this situation because we're criminals, right? We're the worst of the worst, but that's what takes place as a kid growing up in these institutions under those conditions, the Stockholm syndrome kicks in. Classical conditioning is always at play from the second they put the chains on you and they put you in that cage. That's what you're going to adapt to. That's what's going to be your bar in life as a kid. Pavlov and Skinner is at play from the beginning to the end. And understanding finally what you had been conditioned to accept your three meals a day, that warm bed, right? That cage, your family, your friends that are there. When kids are grown up to adapt and assimilate into that, and you don't show them anything else to assimilate into, that is what they come home with. And it's our job to be able to recognize this and want to help this youth because they're still that 17 year old we condemned. Yeah. And that's not how it happens. And that's why I work so hard to try to make that happen. So number one, we don't condemn the youth. And when we understand them, when they come home, we still have an understanding. And there's also the spectrum. Well, we helped him when he was 15, 16, 17. Then he was sent to prison 10 years. Where did he spend his 10 years? Because this is in rehabilitation, what we're seeing. And so that's why I enjoy doing the work that I'm doing. And I'm so passionate uh, about it because I'm fighting for myself. I'm, and I'm still fighting for the adult me uh, now, uh, trying to bake, break the barriers that, that change is impossible, that um, I'm not uh, who the judge said I was. That's not, that's not who's here today having this conversation. That was 17-year-old me. Uh-huh. There's something called maturation uh, that, ta- that takes place. And uh, this is the adult me that's doing uh, what I'm doing today. That 17-year-old that was condemned, that, that was told that he would never do anything with himself, that he was evil, is now the complete opposite. And um, I have to give thanks to my higher power because there were situations that I shouldn't have walked away from that, that, uh, that I was able to walk away from and uh, in walking away from them, I think back now and I think like, holy snaps. Uh, Although I had walked away from God because I was about to engage in things that I knew were not God-like, that is what was a safety net for me. That just quiet voice that never went away. Um, That's the voice that I leaned on when I came home. And uh, it's made my transition so much better to be able to be spiritual, to be all the things that a human being is that I couldn't be in there because it would have been um, a sign of weakness uh, by everyone, not just like the gang culture, by everyone, even law enforcement themselves. And I, I have to just reiterate what you said, what they tell you, a grown adult, we're not here to protect you. Something goes down, man. Hey, we're not here to protect you. That's what they tell us kids when we're walking in there. And you know what? 
they're right. I've watched them sit back. I've watched them engage in, in, in gladiator fights. I've watched them sit back and just know that someone's gonna be harmed and they're okay with this. So as long as it is not themselves, what they tell you is what they tell us. And this is why I do the work because if I'm not doing this work, um, people aren't gonna be aware of the work that needs to be done. And so that's all I'm doing is just highlighting the things that need to be done. And uh, I'm gaining a little bit of momentum and people are starting to understand like, wow, um, we can learn from lived experience. He doesn't need a Stanford uh, master's degree, right? Because many of these institutions are the ones who built the institutions that uh, I was raised in, that I had to survive. And so now I come home to these institutions and educate them on their on their on their practice of law, their understanding of treatment models that are are not treatment uh, after all, and they're listening, right? There's many social justice uh, groups and classes that are taking place now in colleges, and so they're starting to listen more. However, it's not happening quick enough uh, for us to intervene with this prison pipeline that we have in schools straight to prison, as I was. Uh, a victim of. Uh, however, there's no pipeline from Stanford to Pelican Bay, but there's a pipeline from Sequoia High School to Pelican Bay. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's why uh, I, I'm passionate about what I do. You mentioned um, the difference in how youth are socialized today. And so, you know, I'm a parent, but my kids are older now. But and my kids, I was lucky enough that when my kids were younger, it was before the social media world existed cell phones and things just in there wasn't the same things that they're they're not that much older but they're old enough to have missed that but i've got to imagine that just two two sides one is all of those things and those pressures on top of the rest of the pressures that you described and you don't really learn interpersonal skills because you're doing everything via texting or whatever it is and then there's got to be a corollary too that if you are incarcerated like you were like those things didn't exist when you were in prison and then you come out and the world is a vastly different world. So you're starting from a deficit perspective from day one, because you're in a different world than the one you lived in before you yes. were incarcerated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 1992, we had the cordless phones. If you had a cordless phone, uh, you were doing big things. If you had a pager, you were doing big things. Uh, when I, when I came home, it just, we have televisions in cars now. We have uh, screens on cars that take you wherever you want to go, that talk to you, that 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 speak back to you. Actually, when you speak to it, it speaks back. Um, you see people being able to pay to go to space now. Uh, however, a lot of the social skills have deteriorated, as well as uh, as well as have been amplified, right? Because I'm able to meet you right now and, and hang out with you. Uh, without having to drive uh, to wherever you're located. I'm able to meet with people in Africa, in Europe, and have the same conversation about juvenile criminal justice reform and be impactful in another continent uh, because of, of technology. So technology has really allowed me to assimilate and transition a little more easy because I'm able to connect with people that have had similar experiences without having to go drive to another county to look for them. Uh, they're right here at our doorstep. However, uh, the the other side of it 
of of it is the etiquette the there the etiquette has drastically changed um there's no if you're not on zoom you don't talk to anybody in the community uh, everyone is in their phones people don't say excuse me people don't say good morning people are shocked i see the reaction i say hey, good morning happy holidays i see the reaction in some people and then in some people, they never lift their head up. They're just in their phone. Well, and then on top of it, we had a pandemic, right? I mean, that, like another wrench thrown in the whole thing of it. It's even worse where people are all isolated. Even people who aren't incarcerated were all isolated, at least. And this then adds on to that whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, I actually uh, facilitated for an organization on uh, on the ripple effect, but on the things that you can do to keep yourself busy. Like some of the same things I used to do in my cage to keep myself busy, I share with community members um, out here on exercising, on reading books, learning more about social justice, having a pet. Uh, what is it like to care for a pet, uh, a garden, becoming more intimate with your wife, uh, your, your kids. But then there's the flip side. If you were in a toxic environment, and the only reason you were able um, to coexist was because eight hours of the day you were we were both sending, or maybe like most families commute an hour or two on top of that apart from each other, and, and suddenly you're there twenty four seven with each other. You realize you really aren't that compatible, uh, compatible, and the things that were keeping you together are now the things that are driving you apart. And so people are also being harmed. So the pandemic has been. Uh, has been in a, in a way to connect with people through social media, but has also been a way, um, a, a toxic way for people who aren't living through social media and are living together in a household. So three families sharing a house in order to make, uh, to be able to live in the Bay Area, suddenly that's not possible because 24 seven, 11 people in a two bedroom home uh, is, not gonna, is not gonna work well. And so there's that deterioration yeah of human contact as a result of the pandemic. Then you have those of us who are transitioning from cage to community. Many of my friends desperate to taste life have to now isolate, have to um, shelter in place. And it, they felt, many of my friends feel cheated that they have to transition in a pandemic. Once again, they feel, well, this is my luck. And I explained to them, no, that's not your luck. There's so many cool things that you're gonna be able to to uh, uh, adapt into even during the pandemic like this, this conversation that we're having today. Uh, and these are the things that they haven't realized yet that they'll begin to realize, but it takes people like ourselves to help them realize that these uh, portals exist to be able to still tap into. You could still go out and socialize, but unfortunately you have to do that with a mask for now. Yeah. Um, and being a part of the community, I pray and pray to be a part of the community again and finally i'm a part of the community again and they say shelter in place at first it was like oh well that's not cool and then it was suddenly like hey you know what my community is sheltering in place i want to be a part of the community so i'm going to shelter in place and i'm going to be happy to shelter in place my community wants to be wants everyone to be vaccinated because it makes the community safer i'm going to get vaccinated because I'm a part of the community. I'm a part of the fabric now. Uh, so it's just like stopping at a red light, right? The community stops at a red light, stop at a red light, yeah. right? You're not you're not driving right through a red light. These are the things that we've learned that makes us safer, that makes us uh, able to coexist in the manner that we are. 
And so well, I think you probably have a you probably have a perspective too that's just a different perspective. You know, there's 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 so many people out there screaming about the things that you were just describing, wearing a mask, getting vaccinated, saying you're taking away my rights. Well, they have no idea what taking away their rights really are. Not in the way you understand what having your rights taken away really are. You know, being put in a cage, being shackled, being thrown into violence every day, being put in solitary for 12 years. Like, that's taking away your rights. Now, whether you right. earned it or not, whether you deserved it or not, that's a whole different thing. And I'm sure some people who have had that happen probably do really deserve that. I don't know that anybody deserves that, but what, but you know what I mean. But there's a very that's a very different thing than saying I'm going to take a shot because it's the way to keep my community safe and Correct. me safe. That's that's a different world. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. When they say you're infringing on my rights, exactly how you put it is, I think like, wow, they've never been chained up to a metal chair in a in a in a concrete and still cell and not be able to leave that chair chained like an animal. Like I have my beautiful German shepherds. They have never seen the inside of a cage. And I, it hurts me when I put them on a leash because I like to walk with them in the neighborhood. But, but again, there's rules. There's rules in the neighborhood. And so I was chained to a chair overnight at times in my underwear, cold. Nowhere to go, no one to scream for. Like if you would have screamed, nobody would have heard you. And um, this is what, our government does to us. So when my government says, hey, medicine says that the vaccination is the healthiest way to protect yourselves and protect your community, make your community safer, I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in. Uh, and so I, I, I'm like that with my friends. You have some that resist, right? Some, some are paranoid because of history, right? Like uh, eugenics. Uh, we know what has happened in history. Uh, but I tell myself, being incarcerated 25 and a half years, being forced to eat the things that they made me eat, being forced to be uh, vaccinated in there, you, tuberculosis, if you, they're going to come and get your TB test. We might as well outlaw TB testing as well if you're not going to get vaccinated. Like These are the things that are going on today. These these practices have been on since been going on for for hundreds of years in communities, right? Today, this is the bubonic plague. This is our bubonic plague, the, the you know, co corona, COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, tuberculosis, this is how you fight tuberculosis. This is why you get tested every April for tuberculosis. And if there's something wrong, you get medication. This is it, This yeah. is we're doing this again. So it's not something that we haven't been doing. However, it's been, um, it's been, uh, utilized, I think, for political reasons. And I think that's where people are able to, to, to gather the strength to say, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And this is, this is serious. This is just like tuberculosis. If you don't believe in this, you don't believe in tuberculosis, right? Why even get tested for tuberculosis? So um, a couple of questions for you before, uh, before I let you go. Um, well, for, and then I want you to circle back and talk about re-evolution and what you're doing and just how people okay. might be able to help. Um, but before we do that, so the first one is what's, what's your proudest moment? Hmm. Wow. That's a hard one because the, every accomplishment is, uh, is that proud moment. Like just, 
But I think I would say the proudest moment for me probably has to be to be baptized uh, um, and be confirmed by my church. Because when you have no one as a, as a human being, when you're chained up to this chair, um, you, you have absolutely no one to speak to, right? And uh, so you speak to who you know is listening. And so this spiritual connection, this love that I developed as a kid for God suddenly was in play again uh, out of desperation, right? Wanting to communicate, being able to use your tongue, your voice, and uh, having that dialogue, right? This, this is a very serious environment where you do very little talking and you're utilizing all of your other senses, the smell, your sense of, your sense of, of hearing, uh, your, your, your sense of sight, but your tongue is normally closed there. So that dialogue, uh, it always happened. It, it always happened with my, my, my higher power, with God. Um, sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative. And I, and I have to say that when I came home, my wife, she's Irish Catholic, and um, she, she's grown up in the church. And that's what I was. I was uh, a Mexican-American Catholic uh, baptized in the church, a decision made by my parents uh, right after I was born that I would be touched by God and put on that path. And then I strayed from it for a long time. I strayed from it for a long time. And uh, coming home, uh, engaging in that quiet dialogue again, a different conversation um, because different you know, being under the stars at night, watching the moon from my porch uh, with a glass, of, a glass of milk or hot chocolate with my German shepherd sitting next to me. The dialogue is different. And um, I started to have those dialogues again, being introduced to that. And when I was finally confirmed uh, and then married in the church, being able to... Um, sit down with the priest and and really let things out just gave me a, a fresh start i sat there with 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 another man um that was there in human form to listen uh like i had imagined in that cage chained up to the chair and it was a different dialogue but this time it was uh, a different environment and it was like a sign let me know like remember what you used to think remember what you thought remember how you felt you have no excuse anymore here here it is and uh i think realizing that was i think my greatest moment because uh i launched Right after that, I launched and uh, I went uh, I went hard in the paint with my assimilation, with my transition, knowing that uh, that spiritual connection uh, was in fact always there. It was something that I was there, but man, man will make you think that it's not. And um, 
they made me feel and made me think like it wasn't for a long time. And, uh, and, and when I finally had that dialogue again, and it was a serious dialogue, um, it was a, I was able to leave it there at the church of nativity where I'm a member at. And, uh, that's where it remains, but that's where I also get my energy to be able to re-traumatize myself every single time talking about these things for the betterment of the next generation that's coming up in the chain in the cages. And that's why I'm so passionate. But that, I would say that was my proudest moment is, is uh, reconnecting with the dialogue and, and realizing that, that there was a different, uh, that there was a different way of life, uh, that the life is different and so those conversations have completely changed and they're, they're, they're to this day, they, they're still, they're different now. It's like, wow, when you think, when you think you, you know life, when you think like when man, when man policy law, whatever it is, makes you finally feel like, shit, this is life right here. You're going to get a curveball at some point. You just have to recognize, uh, you have to recognize it. And uh, I've recognized it and, and I revel in it every day that I wake up. I have to commute from Redwood City to Oakland because I can't find a job in my county. Uh, but believe me, I torture myself with that 280 scenic view as, as, as I drive on to that man-made uh, engineering miracle, that Bay Bridge that was created, the safest place to be on during an earthquake here in the Bay Area. Uh, I revel in that rather than complaining about it. Um, I come home to my wife, my dogs, some people uh, dread coming home. I revel, I revel in it when I'm here. Uh, my wife is in the other room working from home right now. And uh, I just love my life today. I, I think that I love my community uh, just as much as I love God, uh, because if it, if it's going to take a community to make this a success. And uh, right here in San Mateo County, uh, community is making it a success. And, and now I'm working with all of the criminal justice system here, the district attorney, uh, the chief of probation, uh, uh, superior court judge, private defender's office to create a space that is treatment based rather than punishment based. We're creating an alternative to the chain and cages. We understand that we can't punish mental illness out of a kid. We can't punish complex trauma out of a kid. We can't punish addiction out of a kid. It's a disease. Mm -hmm. So we're going to create a space now um, that provides treatment for these diseases. We understand now, and uh, they have been open to listening. And that's why that we, we, we've come to this understanding as human beings, as adults now, that we, we can't be so quick to condemn our kids. Uh, we have to give them the space. If they don't have that space in the community, it's our job to provide that space, and and that's where I'm uh, I'm geared toward. But yeah, that was that was a great question. So, um, on those along those lines, who inspires you? Oh wow, I have so many, um, so many people who inspire me. I have so many mentors in life, uh, but the one that. I believe inspires me the most is my wife because she was with me 17 years of those 25 and a half years when I met her uh, while in prison and 17 years, she would come to visit me and see me completely different than every other human being uh, would see me there. 
And when I when I came home, uh, she doesn't see me any different. She still sees me exactly the same way, just in different clothes, without chains, without handcuffs on me. And her her struggle uh, has also been a, a struggle, just like every other person out here in the community has her struggle. But uh, the inspiration comes from the unconditional love, aside from my mom and my dad, uh, that I received, that I have felt from her um, these these 19 years, uh, 20 years uh, that we are are, are on. Um, it, that's inspirational. That unconditional love does exist, uh, and again, that's part of my dialogue uh, with with my with my higher power, with God. Is is when you think you know something, you really don't. You just have to be open uh, to to see that opportunity coming upon you, uh, and also always being prepared, doing your best to be prepared to capitalize on opportunity. So that means brush your teeth every day, uh, comb your hair every day, and, and look at life as you want life to look at you and just be prepared for that opportunity, it'll come. Mine has come when I thought I was doomed, when I was leaking blood in prison, when I was getting beat by clubs, when I was being forced to engage in gladiator fights. I didn't see these, I couldn't see the opportunities. I was too busy trying to stay alive. And today I could see them. And, uh, and I'm more prepared than ever to capitalize on any opportunity that crossed my trajectory today. That's awesome. Um, how can people help? Um, my listeners probably would love to know now after listening ways that they can help your mission. Well, again, I don't get paid for doing this work. So I have to raise money to keep my organization alive. My organization, I have, it's here in San Mateo County. Uh, and I need any support I can get. This money is just invested into the work that I'm already doing. Uh, whether I get the help I need or I don't, I do this work. Voluntarily, it's going to happen. And uh, that is the, the biggest way a 501c3 can can exist, can stay alive. The other thing is get involved with juvenile criminal justice reform. Figure out who's your chief of probation, who's your district attorney, who's your sheriff, what are their policies? Do we obliterate families? Do we deport the breadwinner and leave kids into the foster system? Are we trying kids as adults? Are we condemning kids? Are we plea bargaining with mentally ill kids that we put in cages that are desperate, that will sign any piece of paper to get out of that cage? Are we providing mental health services to these kids? Are our, are our kids here in the foster system? Our kids are beyond our county lines. Why do they have to be beyond the county lines? Bring them home. Let's invest. This is part of the investment. So this is how you can help me by getting in contact with me, getting in contact with your community leaders and finding out how are your youth being treated? Even the ones that commit horrible uh, offenses, ask why this Rittenhouse kid, 17 years old, demonized. No one has yet asked, how did he get a semi-automatic weapon? How, why was he raised to think that that was okay? He hasn't even dealt with the impact of what it's like 
to take a life or to lose somebody. He hasn't really felt that yet. And it's going to hit him. It's going to hit him. He hasn't matured. That impulsivity is there right now, but it's going to set in. And when you realize how damaging a human being can get, you, you, you either are going to do the work on yourself to change or you're going to start giving back and um, support your community, support your youth. Uh, look me up, Reevolution. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I am on uh, Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Support, get involved. And if you need help getting involved, please reach out to me. Uh, I am more than willing. I stretch myself very thin uh, to get the job done. But I think we are in a state of emergency when it comes uh, to humanizing youth. We have to move quicker to intervene in the pipeline that exists to prison. Again, we don't have a pipeline from Stanford or Harvard, but we have one from our high schools. It doesn't make any sense. We, we have to do more to get more involved. And um, I look forward to any type of help or feedback that I can get uh, that would make me uh, not only a better person, but um, better prepared to continue to deal with the criminal justice system as I delve deeper into the layers of it. Because now I've got people's attention, people are listening, and uh, any type of empowerment that I receive from the community only enables me to push harder uh, for the things that I want to do. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck and Godspeed to you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. God bless. Happy holidays to everyone and uh, get vaccinated. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.